0: The reading of the word comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The grass withers and the flowers fade.
1: Good morning, church. As, uh, as Kevin alluded to, I'm not the pastor. I am a pastor. Um, change of stand, maybe. Sorry, guys. I need assistance. I don't know if this is a sign that I should never be doing this or I should be doing this more. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So good morning. As Kevin alluded to, I am not the lead. We're just changing everything. I am not the lead pastor here, uh, which means that I get to say whatever I want to without ramifications for my income, which is a nice freedom to have in the pulpit. (laughs) But all joking aside, um, I am one of the elders. If you're new here or you haven't been with us, um, Kevin is the pastor and he has allowed me and I consider it such a joy to step in and to teach and preach the word from the pulpit. Um, to the church, the gathered body of Christ. Uh, if you have a Bible this morning and you don't have it open to 1 Corinthians 15, I would encourage you uh, to turn there as we walk through our text together. But before we dive in, um, would you bow your heads and let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you for the privilege of hearing you speak to us. God, I pray during this time that your voice would be the loudest in our hearts, God, that you would use uh, the moments we have here under your word, um, God, to show your might, to show your authority, God, to show your glory to us uh, in and through the face of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would shape us more into your image and more into your likeness uh, because of this time here that we would glorify you more in the earth. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, well, over the past three weeks, we have been climbing the mountain that is 1 Corinthians 15, and today we will crest the summit. This is the last of the chapter. Next week, we'll head into chapter 16, which is the last chapter in the book. And this whole chapter has been Paul defending the reality of the resurrection. Paul has been answering the question, was Christ raised from the dead? And will we, in turn, be raised from the dead? So back in verses 12 and 13 of this chapter, several weeks ago, we covered this, but Paul wrote this. He said, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, because some of them were saying, there is no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And so the gospel as we know it was at stake here. And there was, as I said, a group of Christians in Corinth teaching against the reality of the resurrection and teaching more in line with the Greek philosophy of the day, which to sum it up, said the soul was good and eternal, but the body temporal and bad. You could say it was a version of the gospel that acknowledged Good Friday, but denied the reality of Easter Sunday. And so Paul spends 58 verses here at the end of his letter, arguing for the reality of the resurrection. And Paul's point here, his whole argument, you could say the reason he even broaches the subject to begin with is because Paul says that the, re- the reality of the resurrection, it changes everything. As everyone's favorite Eastern European theologian, Yaroslav Pelikan once said, and if you haven't said that name, I'd encourage you to say it. It rolls off the tongue quite nicely, Jaroslav Pelikan. Um, but he said this, he said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, Nothing else matters, which means that the fact that Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but also rose from the dead, and the scriptures say now rules and reigns at the right hand of God should change the way we live our day-to-day lives. It should change the way we walk into work. It should change the way we treat our neighbor. It should change the way we parent our children. It should change the way we spend our money. The resurrection, Paul says, changes everything. I don't know if you guys have caught this or not, but three of the last four weeks, our corporate benediction, the blessing for the road, kind of the last communal piece of our service has come from the last verse of this chapter. It says this, Tyler read it for us a minute ago, but Paul writes, therefore, so in light of the last 57 verses of information and theology and application, Paul says, beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And the only way our labor is not in vain in this life is if the resurrection is real, if Christ really did defeat death, and if we will do the same as we trust and follow him. So that's where we're going this morning. That's the Sparknotes version of my sermon, if they still have those. (laughs) Um, In fact, we could just pray, serve communion, and say peace out, but I get paid by the paragraph, so we're going to be here a little longer. That was a joke. I don't get paid for this, which is fine. Do it out of the goodness of my heart, by God's grace. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, Kevin is nodding, shaking his head up here. Uh, In all seriousness, though, that is exactly where we're going. That's the so what of this text. It's the so what of this chapter. And by the time we reach our text here in chapter 15, Paul has already made his argument for the reality of Christ's resurrection. He has made his argument for the resurrection of the saints. And here Paul is just kind of filling in some blanks for us. So Paul tells us a bit about how the resurrection happens. He then tells us why it has to happen. Must is the word he uses. And then Paul lands the plane in verse 58, which we just read, but we'll unpack a bit more at the end. So look with me. Um, We're actually going to come back to verse 50. Look with me first, starting in verses 51 and 52. Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So Paul doesn't tell us all the ways that our resurrected bodies will differ from our current bodies. Paul does not parse that out for us. What he does tell us, though, is that all of us will be changed. The we there that Paul mentions in both verse 51 and verse 52 there is an inclusive we, Meaning it's referring to all believers for all time. So you could read that and say, well, Paul thought he was going to be alive when Jesus came back. That's not necessarily the case. He was just saying there will be believers living when Christ comes back. And all believers living or dead will be changed. As Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye. You could say instantaneously. Just as God spoke creation into being in the beginning in Genesis, so he will speak resurrection and transformation into being at Christ's second coming. So that's how we're going to be changed. Now, let's look at why this has to happen. It must happen. Look with me at verse 50. Paul says this. I'll tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So Paul says these two realities, flesh and blood and kingdom of God, they cannot coexist. They are fundamentally incompatible. And remember, Paul has been talking about the resurrection for the last 49 verses and specifically talking about our earthly bodies incurring this resurrection for about the last 15 of those verses. That is a lot of ink in those days. And so although Paul is interjecting some new terms here, he is not talking about anything different. So all Paul means by flesh and blood here is our current fallen, fragile bodies. And when Paul says kingdom of God, he is referring to what the New Testament writers call the age to come. More specifically, it's the age inaugurated at Christ's second coming, whereas Paul's been explaining we will have redeemed and resurrected bodies, and of that age there will be no end. That last part there is an important detail to keep in mind because it gets at why our bodies must be changed through resurrection and through transformation. And Paul tells us there are two main problems with our current fallen natural bodies that make them so incompatible with the kingdom of God. He mentions it here in verse 50, but he also uses verse 53 to tell us why. So Paul says once again in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Then jump down to verse 53. Paul says this, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now those two verses sound a lot alike. That is on purpose. They kind of mirror one another. They are parallel verses, so to speak, which means Paul is using verse 53 here to communicate the same thing, or at least to add to our understanding of verse 50. Now, in both of those verses, you may have heard it, Paul says the perishable must put on or inherit the imperishable, which means the difference in these two verses lies in Paul's use of the terms flesh and blood and kingdom of God in verse 50 and mortal and immortal in verse 53. And it's this difference of terms here that helps us distinguish the qualities that Paul is pointing to that make our natural bodies so incompatible with the age to come and the kingdom of God namely it's because our bodies now are mortal as he says in verse 53 and they are perishable as he says in both verses to say it simply and to use some alliteration if it helps you out our bodies both decay and they die right it's no secret although oftentimes we would rather live in denial of the fact that none of us will live forever at least not in this body or in this state at some point all human bodies stop growing stronger healthier And fitter and they start becoming weaker more feeble and more fragile and for many of us in the room The scale has already tipped and you can probably feel it Our bodies age and with it we grow tired all the parents of young children in the room know what i'm talking about Exhaustion is just the air that we breathe and eventually we will all die Barring the second coming of jesus all of us will fall asleep All of us will die The person to your right and left, you can go ahead and take a look at them. You can really take a look at them, (laughs) nobody's moving their heads. One day, listen to me, one day they will be a memory on this side of eternity. They will be captured in a story passed down from one generation to the next, or they will be frozen in time only in a photograph or a video. As a Lenten phrase from Ash Wednesday reminded us, dust we are and to dust we shall return. And so the reason that this kind of body, one that breaks down, one that is finite, one that will one day cease to exist, is so incompatible with the kingdom of God is precisely because the kingdom of God will never cease to exist. The kingdom of God will be eternity on repeat of nothing less than all of the goodness, grace, and glory of God you could ever imagine and a million times more. And we will never get tired of enjoying its beauty. Every moment will be as enjoyable as the first, and the moment after will be even better. And that doesn't even make sense, what I just said, but you can't make sense of the kingdom of God. It is not something we can fathom or comprehend in our minds as they are. And therefore, we must have a body that is fit for this occasion. One, as Paul says, that is imperishable and immortal. One that will never grow old or tired. One that will never decay or die. And when this happens, Paul says reality will be something altogether different. Jump down to verses 54 and 55. Paul writes this. He says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So Paul here ends these two verses by quoting two Old Testament prophecies. The first one Eloise read for us earlier comes from Isaiah chapter 25 in verse eight of that text. It says death is swallowed up in victory. The second one comes from Hosea chapter 13, also a prophet in the Old Testament. And he poses this question. uh, He says, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, your victory? And it's important to note here, listen up, that Paul is alluding to the fact that both of these prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. They still lie in the future for us in the here and now. Christ will fulfill them, but we are not quite there yet. Listen once again to what Paul says. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. So we're not not there yet. This is future tense. Then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So we live right now in the here and now, excuse me, In the space that theologians call the already not yet. It's a term we use a good bit around here, but it's referring to this specific time and space in history where Christ has come, he has lived, he's died, he's rose again, and our victory is sure, but we don't yet live in the fulfillment of that victory. Meaning all of the ramifications of what Jesus did haven't yet been actualized. Jesus has bought the house, but he hasn't quite moved in yet, if you understand what I'm saying. And in the space in between, the Bible and Paul in particular are very clear about the fact that death still reigns in our mortal bodies, and we still very much feel the effects of the fall. And I say that to give us permission to grieve death on this side of eternity. Death still stings at this point in time. Death still looks like the bully on the playground. And oftentimes it feels like death wins out in the end. So listen to me. When an excited mom who is 12 weeks pregnant has a miscarriage or an army wife with three young kids gets the news that her husband has been murdered or a 75 year old man buries his bride of almost 60 years after a long and painful battle with cancer, that is not the time to ask, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? That would be a gross misunderstanding and gross misapplication of Paul's teaching here. Sin is real. Its consequences are fatal, and grief and mourning are still very much appropriate on this side of Christ's second coming. But as Paul tells us in our text, that will not always be the case. There is a day coming when sin will no longer reign, and a stinger forever will be removed. And that is what Paul is getting at here. Paul is giving us a foretaste of what reality will be like in the kingdom of God which means that these few verses here are about far more than God just changing and kind of tweaking our bodies. This is the moment creation has been longing for, groaning for, as Paul writes in Romans eight, as a woman bringing life into the world. These few verses here are about Paul uh, ushering in and reminding us of the redemption of all things that is to come. And so yes, this text is about the resurrection of the dead in Christ. Yes, it's about the transformation of those alive in Christ, but it is also about the redemption and the re-edonization of creation as we know it, which means that the kingdom of God won't be some ethereal experience where disembodied souls float on clouds singing Chris Tomlin songs on repeat to Jesus. That is not what heaven will be like. Praise God. The kingdom of God will be tangible It'll be touchable. It'll be physical. It will be our perfected bodies enjoying this perfected world in the presence of a perfect God and it will be stunning. And all of this happens, Paul says, in the blinking of an eye. Christ comes, God speaks, and everything is changed. Paul mentioned earlier in this chapter in verse 26 that the last enemy to be be defeated is death. And this text this morning is about the realization of that statement. You might have seen the sermon title is the death of death and that is what the second coming is. It is the death of death for all who have trusted in Christ in this life. It's a moment when Jesus undoes all of our sin with all of its side effects and to borrow a phrase he makes all the sad things untrue for those who follow him. Next, let's move down to verses 56 and 57. Paul tells us precisely what Christ has overcome in order to make this reality happen. Look with me there. Paul says this. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the gospel, is it not? In a text on the resurrection and the redemption of all things, Paul kind of folds and tucks away the gospel into these two verses here, and he does it quite well. So first Paul states the problem in these two verses, namely our sin. Then Paul gives us the consequence, or as he calls it, the steam, which is death. And then Paul gives us the force or the power behind that sin, which is the law, which means that what makes sin, sin is the law. Because without the law, there is no awareness of sin. There is no condemnation of guilt. And so the law both condemns us as guilty. And at the very same time, it serves us as a grace. Because apart from it, we would never know our need for a savior. Enter Jesus. Right? Jesus saves us. He does just that. And he does it by undoing and overcoming both of the clauses in verse 56. So Christ fulfills the law perfectly with his life thereby removing sin's power, and then he dies a substitutionary death on the cross, thereby removing sin's sting. And as God transforms our hearts, as we trust in him, Christ imputes his righteousness to us and he does it through no merit of our own. This is why Paul contrasts our sinful state in verse 56 with this praise and adoration of Jesus in verse 57, excuse me, as he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's only through Christ that we enter God's kingdom, and it's only in Christ that eternal life is found. That's what Jesus meant in John chapter 11 when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. There's the resurrection of the dead. And he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the transformation of those alive in Christ. Which leaves us with the question, what do we do in the meantime? Right, if we've got 10, 20, 50 years, or if we have 24 hours left on this earth, what do we do as we wait for this moment, the inauguration of the kingdom? And this is where Paul's doctrine of the body goes from the reality of the resurrection to the implications in our day-to-day lives, After 57 verses of education, Paul has one verse of application. Now, remember the belief of the day in Corinth, which is not unlike our belief today, at least culturally speaking, was that the spiritual is good and eternal and the body, the physical is bad and it's temporal. And since our bodies won't be around that long anyway, we can basically treat them like disposable income. We can do what we want with them, when we want, and we can enjoy them while we have them. And as Paul said earlier in this chapter, if that's the case, we should just eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow for all we know, we might die or at least our bodies might. And to that line of thinking, Paul and the New Testament would say that you don't just have a body, you are a body. It is broken. It is fragile. It is a jar of clay, so to speak. But even so, it is the temple of the living God. And when the curtains roll and the music plays, God isn't going to get rid of your body. He is going to redeem it. He's going to resurrect it. Which brings us to verse 58, where Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, and you could add sisters there, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And this, as I said in the intro, is where Paul is intended for this whole chapter to go. Paul's defended the resurrection. He has placed devil's advocate to his own theology. He has taught on the resurrection of the saints. He's presented the gospel to his readers, all to get to verse 58, where he tells the Corinthians and us by way of Christ to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we need to get this right. Right? We could dive here, and I thought about, do we, do we exegete the Greek on these three kind of... Uh, adjectives, if you will, that might be the wrong part of speech, but steadfast, immovable, always abounding, should we just exegete that here? But I think it's pretty clear what Paul's getting at there. Right, As much as you can do it, and as often as you can do it, do it all the time. Work for the Lord. I think a better question to ask here, or maybe two questions, would be to ask the questions of why and how. Right After all this talk on the resurrection, Paul says, work. That seems a bit odd to me. Right? And so I think the first question we need to answer is, is, why, Paul? And then we need to answer the question of how. What does this look like? How do we do this in real life, day to day, on Monday morning when your feet hit the ground and you don't want it to be Monday? So first, let's answer the question of why. Why, after all this talk on the body and the resurrection, does Paul tell us to work? Well, I believe it is to specifically combat the Corinthian belief And like I said, our belief of the day today, that Christ could purchase one's soul without purchasing one's body. Paul's letter, especially to the churches in Corinth, both in in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, are filled with both doctrine and application for our bodies. Because Paul wants them to know that when Christ redeems us, when he ransoms us, he ransoms all of us, including our bodies. And so if Jesus hasn't just bought back your spirit, but your skin too, your body, then you no longer have rights to it. You no longer own it. And what Christ would have you do with your body as the one who has purchased it with his blood is to now present your body as a living sacrifice and to present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. And how do we do this? Well, we work. When I hear work, I think of manual labor. That is not what Paul's talking about here when he says to work. What he means is that the body does work, right? If the body is not stagnant and resting, it is doing something. It works, it moves, it's accomplishing tasks, it's fulfilling duties. To say it another way, all work is embodied work. We have to remember that before chapter 15, Paul spent an extensive amount of time writing on the spiritual gifts or the gifts given to spiritual people, and how we are to use those gifts to build up and encourage the body. And any work that would do that, any word of encouragement, any act of love, any act of sacrifice, we might make, we speak and act, and we make with our bodies. We don't love people only in our minds. Nobody has ever come up to me and said, you know what, Hunter? Those thoughts in your head yesterday, they really changed me. They blessed me Brother, I felt so loved by them, so encouraged. No, it's only when I speak those words with my mouth and my tongue and my vocal cords, which are all parts of my body, that they actually do any good. We may feel love for others in our hearts and our heads, but others only experience that love when we love them with our bodies. To say it another way, our bodies are the means by which, the medium, the vehicle for the redemptive work that God has done in our hearts. And apart from that, God's work, God's uh, redemptive work in our heart has no expression or no outlet aside from our God-given bodies. So that's why Paul exhorts us to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, how do we do that? How do we live that out? What is Paul referring to here? Well, the Greek word used for work here is the word ergon, ergon. You can say that with me just to wake you up a little bit. Ergon, like ergonomics. Ergon. You guys are really good at that. It simply means this. It means to work, to labor, to do an act or deed. It is used 176 times in the New Testament. I counted every single one. Just kidding. But 152 of those times, it's translated into the word work, right? So that is really nonspecific, not very helpful at all. That was a dead end. So my mind first went to what we might call vocation or calling, right? It's your job is typically what we think of that as. If you're a teacher, your classroom is where you carry out the work of the Lord. If you're a soldier, then on base or in combat with your soldiers, that is where you carry out the work of the Lord. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here, nor do I think it's all that helpful. For starters, that limits God's work in our lives to about 40 hours a week, and it limits that work to one location and likely one population of people. Especially if your identity gets tied to that job, which it so easily does. I think a better understanding of the work God is, or excuse me, the work Paul is talking about here, lies in the context of Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me if you have your Bible open, um, I don't know, a few pages to the right. Uh, you'll find Ephesians, it's another letter Paul wrote to another church, the church at Ephesus. We'll look in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. So for context, because we're not going to read verses 1-7, through Paul opens up this chapter by outlining the way that we all at one time were living in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, and how by nature we were children and objects of God's wrath. And then Paul does this sharp about-face in verse 4, and he interjects with God's mercy, which has saved us in and through the person and work of Christ. And then Paul says this in verse eight. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Ergon, that's our word there. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ergon, same word, which God's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is a bit tricky here. Because Paul just said that while our works don't save us, only God's grace does that. That once we have been saved, those very same works ought to mark our lives. And in fact, Paul would go as far as to say that they are vital to the purpose of our salvation to begin with. And this is an important distinction for the Christian to make. And that's to understand that while we couldn't possibly earn our salvation... In fact, the only thing we bring to the table is the sin to be atoned for in the first place, that at the very same time, after Christ has atoned for that sin, he has purchased our salvation, we are called to now uphold the laws that once condemned us. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 3, Do we continue to break the law because of our faith? No, by no means now through our faith and by God's grace, we uphold the law. Meaning that in Christ, we become instruments of righteousness in a world full of wickedness. We become agents of reconciliation that pull the kingdom of God into the here and now so that God's will might be done here on earth through us, the church, as it's done perfectly, always in heaven. So having said all that, what is the work of the Lord that we are called to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in? Well, I think it's this. It is whatever embodied task God has called and created us to do in the only day that we have been given and promised, which is today. Hear me here. Most of the time, most of the time, this is going to look very, very ordinary, mostly mundane and seemingly insignificant. But I think a good question for us to ask ourselves as we leave this place this morning as we head to work perhaps tomorrow or if we're in a thursday and the week is dragging on is this what is the kingdom work that god is inviting me into right here and right now and sometimes occasionally that work is going to look kind of scary or difficult it's going to look like sharing the gospel with a co-worker or sharing your testimony with a neighbor or talking to the weird awkward guy just not at the urinal Sorry, that was off script. Should have led that one in the brain. But most of the time, hear me, most of the time this is going to look really small, really simple, really ordinary. It's going to look like reading a book with your child at bedtime. It's going to look like holding your tongue when you could say something that is sharp and stinging. and would make that person feel so, so small. It's going to look like actively listening to a friend. But all of these tasks, all of these works, are opportunities for us to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. I would go as, to far, as far as to say that everything we do in and with our bodies is an opportunity to love if it is done in faith for the good of others and for the glory of God. So say the encouraging word, give the warm hug pay your taxes, smile at your neighbor, make a meal, fix a flat tire, play with your kids, help a family move, and do everything you can in and with your body to love others and to build them up in Jesus Christ. For the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to an embodied spirituality. You have given us bodies, wonderful works of your creation to carry out your bidding into the world. Help us to take what you have said through your servant, Paul, God, and through me in some small way. And help your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.